St. Patrick, again, uh, this, is, this is a brief reflection tonight, a brief meditation. I hope that it will be valuable to you. Um, a couple of things about Patrick to begin with. Number one, he's a true figure. He's a, he's a real figure. Despite all of, the, all of the stuff that goes on in Chicago and all of the stuff that goes on in Savannah, these centers of just kind of um, um, rampant, um, rampant sin celebrating St. Patrick's Day, he was a real guy. Uh, St. George we're not too sure about, but St. Patrick is the real deal. He's the real McCoy. Uh, so he's really real. He's really historical, but he's not Irish. St. Patrick is not an Irishman. <laughs> he's real. Uh, he's, he's, uh, he's not Irish. We don't have a lot to go on with Patrick historically. We only have two documents by Patrick himself. The rest is tradition. The rest is stuff that's been attributed to Patrick, which is interesting, but there's no way to be historically certain that it's true. And uh, the only thing that we have to go on are two documents he wrote by himself. One is called The Confession. The Confession of Patrick, which is a kind of a defense of his life, Patrick. Patrick lived his life in many dangers, amidst many perils, both by the pagans and also by his fellow churchmen. He was attacked by his fellow churchmen, and he lived his life with a sense of, um, of threat and of peril. And the confession is a kind of a defense of his mission in Ireland uh, to the church. And it's a way for him to praise God for all of the multiple deliverances that he, that he goes through. The other is a letter that he wrote to uh, a group of soldiers of Caroticus, a letter to Caroticus or a letter to the soldiers of Caroticus. Caroticus was, was a warlord in Scotland, the kind of a nominal Christian warlord who had kidnapped and murdered and uh, stolen a bunch of Patrick's recent uh, baptismal candidates. In fact, in the letter, uh, Patrick says the gleam of the chrism was still on their foreheads when you took them, <laughs> he says. Um, and uh, he's quite upset in this letter uh, for that sake. Um, in his confession, we learn that Patrick was probably somewhere along the coast of, of Britain. So whether in Wales or in Scotland or somewhere, somewhere in between. So we had the Lake District, the Carlisle District uh, between Scotland and Wales. Um, he is somewhere in there. And Patrick lived in the last decades of Roman rule. And so Rome was pulling out of Britain. They'd had enough. They'd had enough of the picks, especially after they ate the entire Ninth Roman Legion, right? The, the whole legion goes missing. <laughs> and uh, Rome had been, had been bombarded by these attacks from the picks for, for so many years. They're pulling out. And so this is towards the end of the 4th century, beginning of the 5th century. Patrick is born around 390, roughly, common era. He lives till about 460. And uh, just to put that in context, Augustine of Hippo is born in 354, so about 40 years prior to uh, Patrick, and Augustine lives to 430, um, about 30 years before Patrick dies. So these two, Augustine of Hippo and Patrick of Ireland, are rough contemporaries, and both of them write confessions. One of those historical, historical interesting things um, that goes on. And Christianity is alive and well, and vibrant in Augustine's North Africa and in Asia Minor, it's a bit of a different picture in Britain. Christianity is far more recent in Britain at this time. We have evidence. Um, there's a something called the Sator, 
the Sator Square in Manchester that dates Christianity possibly. Have you seen that? The, it's a cryptogram, a Christian cryptogram where we have Sator, 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 Sator written. And if you jumble the letters, if you jumble the letters, uh, you get, you get, um, what do you get? Um, you get the Alpha and the Omega and you get Paternoster in this, in, in a cross, in the f uh, shape of a cruciform, if it's centered around um, the, the middle letter. Um, so there's evidence possibly that Christianity had gone into Britain by the second century, very early, but by the fourth century, in the fifth century, Christianity is still, is still finding its way. And Patrick, um, Patrick uh, tells us that he was the son of a deacon. So um, he's part of this very early picture of Christianity in Britain. You remember some of you that you remember the the uh, the, the legend of, of Joseph of Arimathea. Does anybody know that legend? What what was Joseph of Arimathea purported to have done? He took Jesus when he was a boy to Britain on a merchant trip, uh, and apparently Jesus wrote wrote a little uh, a little uh, built a little stable there as a young carpenter built a little hut. Uh, in Britain, and so that him, Jerusalem, and did those feet in ancient times walk upon these mountain green, and did the holy Lamb of God was he on in England's pleasant pastures seen? Right, that's the great hymn. Bring me my bow of golden, uh, bring my my bow of burning gold, bring me my arrows of desire, bring me my chariots, my chariot of fire. Right, um, so that's an ancient legend there, um, and uh, you know whether that's true or not. Patrick's part of this early development of Christianity there. His father was a deacon. And though raised as a believer, um, Patrick confesses in his confession that when he's 16 years old, living somewhere there along the western coast of Britain, he's utterly ignorant of God and he's utterly ignorant of the gospel. In fact, he confesses his own spiritual benightedness and he does so in the, in the context of everybody that he's living with. He writes in his confession, he says, we had turned away from God. We didn't keep his commandments. We didn't obey our priests who used to remind us of our salvation. And Patrick says, he says, I was a stone in deep mire before this event that he calls his great humiliation. So he grows up, he's 16 years old. His father's a deacon. But the whole, this whole tribe of people had turned from God and hadn't listened to their priests and had disobeyed God's commandments. The event he calls his humiliation is this. When he's 16 years old, Patrick is kidnapped by Irish pirates. And so the, the, the Irish had been making uh, trips and forays into Britain for years and years and years, all along the coast, raiding the coast of England and uh, stealing people and stealing goods. And when he's 16 years old, he becomes one of those persons who's stolen by the Irish, <laughs> by the Irish pirates. And um, he spends six years in Ireland as a teenager in the back-breaking labor, most of it herding sheep. And he talks about this in his confession as a very difficult period. It's a very bleak period. But in that six-year span as a teenager... Stolen by, imagine yourself at 16, stolen by pirates, you know, put to hard labor. It's, a, it's not a pretty picture. Um, but in that period of, of hardship, Patrick says he had a transformation. 
And the transformation is a spiritual one. He says, while he's tending sheep, he learns to pray. In the difficulty of it, in the hardness of it, Patrick learns to call upon God. Now, J.M. Neal, J.M. Neal was an Anglican scholar and he was a hymnodist. Um, and he tells us that it eventually became Patrick's practice to pray through the Psalter every day. That's pretty impressive, right? I mean, I can imagine praying like through Psalm 117 every day. Very short. Um, and uh, But to pray through the entire Psalter, 150 Psalms a day, is pretty impressive. And likely the practice begins here. Patrick says in his confession, I would say as many as 100 prayers through the day and almost as many in the night. And when he says, I said almost 100 prayers, I don't think he just means, you know, Lord have mercy. But he's... He's likely referring here to the psalmody that he had learned <coughs> possibly as a child in the context of the church. He says, I used to beg or I used to wake up for prayer before daylight in this period. I used to pray through the snow. I used to pray through the frost. I used to pray through the rain. Well, why? Because he had nowhere else to go. He wouldn't have a house to go. He had a bunch of sheep to take care of on the hillside. And there's Patrick, whether snow or rain or cold, learn to cry out to God. I mean, it puts me, at least, to shame in those mornings where I don't want to get up in my comfy home and pray to God. He prays through snow, frost, and rain. So coinciding with this new, new development in his prayer life, calling on God, Patrick begins to have these series of vivid dreams. And in one of these dreams, there comes this annunciation of a deliverance. A voice comes to Patrick in the dream, and it says, See, your ship is ready. He has no idea what this means, but he hears his voice saying, Your ship is ready. And so he finds a way to escape his captor. He goes to the ocean, and he finds this pagan crew with a ship who are willing to take him on board. They, they let them come on board, and they go across the Irish Sea, and they... They land somewhere in Britain. He does has no idea where he is. He says it's a deserted and barren land. Nowhere are there people to be found. Probably they've landed down in Wales somewhere. Now, if he's from Scotland, from one of those firths in Scotland, or if he's from the Carlisle district in England, that's a long way to go. And so Patrick, having escaped six years of slavery, now wanders for three years to find his people. There's a wonderful, uh, wonderful stories of deliverance. He, at one point, has nothing to eat. He's still with these pagans. They say, you're a Christian. Why don't you just pray for food? And he prays, and the, this herd of pigs comes. And it's uh, there's a lot of stories like this in his confession, which are quite lovely. But three years he travels. So for nine years, at least, uh, from 16, you know, up to um, 25 or so, um, he he's he's alone and going through this incredible hardship. Well, once he gets back, Patrick is grounded in his faith. He wants to learn about it. He wants to grow in it. And he, he grounds himself in the apostolic faith and the orthodox faith. And uh, he does so in a really rich way. And we see that. I want to read this to you. This, by the way, I, I taught Patrick at, when I was at U of T in my doctoral program back in 2004. And uh, this, is the, this is the text that I use with the students there. Um, this is what Patrick says. Listen to Patrick's confession of the faith. He says, Because there is no other God, nor ever was, nor will be, than God the Father unbegotten, without beginning, 
from whom is all beginning, the Lord of the universe as we have been taught, and his Son, Jesus Christ, whom we declare to have always been with the Father, spiritually and ineffably begotten by the Father before the beginning of the world, before all beginning. And by him are made all things visible and invisible. He was made man, and having defeated death, was received into heaven by the Father, and he hath given him all power over all names in heaven, on earth, and under earth, and every tongue shall confess to him that Jesus Christ is Lord and God, in whom we believe, and whose advent we expect soon to be, judge of the living and of the dead, who will render to every man according to his deeds. And he has poured forth upon us abundantly the Holy Spirit, the gift and the pledge of immortality, who makes those who believe and obey sons of God and joint heirs with Christ. In him do we confess and do we adore one God in the Trinity of the Holy Name. That's a beautiful, lovely, rich, orthodox confession of the faith, which makes Patrick one of the greats. He is a great man, a great man of the Christian faith, not not the man in green that we often see around this time of year. He's, he's a man to be trusted for his faith. It's a very rich articulation. Well, he's grounded in the faith when he gets back, and then he feels called to the ministry. He feels called to the priesthood. And uh, he gets trained for that. It's likely that he went across the channel. He went over to France, to Gaul, to be trained um, by one of the bishops there for the priesthood. And it's while he's there, it's in this training period for the ministry and for the priesthood, that Patrick has another vision. Patrick is still praying. Patrick is still seeking God. And another vision comes to him, and he hears a voice. He's, a voice comes to him, and it says, We ask thee, boy, <laughs> come and walk among us once again. And Patrick tells us when he hears the voice, he doesn't know who it is, but when he hears the voice, it shatters his heart. It breaks his heart. And then he has another dream. And voices again are calling to him, beckoning him to come, but he can't understand the language. He doesn't know what they're saying until he hears a second voice. And the second voice he understands. And the second voice says this. It says, He that has laid down his life for thee, it is he that speaks to you now. And Patrick says he wakes up immediately full of joy. And he knows what he has to do. He's got to go back now to the people who tortured him and abused him and stole his life from him. He's going back to these people. And so Patrick goes back to Britain and the British bishops, um, probably, you know, again, in, in that same area, they, they um, uh, consecrate Patrick as a, a missionary bishop to Ireland and he becomes the really the first Christian bishop in Ireland and the center there that traditionally we put him is in Armagh and any of you know the name Armagh A-R-M-A-G-H Armagh the bishop of Armagh of fame was a guy by the name that that both Josh and Lloyd will know Bishop Usher of Armagh who was one of the greatest champions of the reformed faith in the Reformation period. So we have this beautiful line from Patrick of Armagh to Bishop Usher of Armagh 
but but Patrick is is you know one of the sorry he's not the first he's the second he's he follows someone else here but but uh, one of the first here. Patrick spends the rest of his life evangelizing the Irish. <clears throat> and Patrick is gripped by this deep sense that life's about evangelism. If you're a Christian, life is about evangelism. He writes this in his confession. He says, I wish in my life to wait for his promise who surely never deceives. Even as he promised in the gospel, they shall come from the east and they shall come from the west and they shall all sit down with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. For this reason, Patrick says, we ought to fish well and we ought to fish diligently as the Lord exhorts in advance and teaches us saying, come after me and I will make you fishers of people. Hence, Patrick says, it is most necessary to spread our nets so that a great multitude and a great throng might be caught for God. And so that there may be priests across the land to baptize the people and to exhort the people in need and in want. And Patrick does this, this. Patrick goes out and he evangelizes and he preaches and Patrick ordains a host of preachers to go across Ireland to set up churches, to baptize, and to teach in the faith, which is really what we're doing today. I mean, we're doing that now. We've got a, we've got a, you know, as Anik, we've got a couple churches in Kelowna, but there's Vernon, there's Kamloops, a couple places in between. <laughs> there's places to go, and there's people that need to hear the gospel. Well, when it happens, and God begins to bring people in. Patrick begins to express great surprise that it actually does happen through him. He writes, How did it come to pass in Ireland that those who never had knowledge of God, but until now had always worshipped idols and things impure, how did it happen that they've been made a people of the Lord and called his sons and his daughters? And Patrick tells us that he himself baptized thousands of people. He baptized thousands of people. He, he consecrates and he, he, um, he sets apart hundreds of preachers and ministers and priests. And even though Patrick, he does all this work and he baptizes thousands, Patrick never, ever outgrows his sense of unworthiness. And he never outgrows his sense of smallness and the sense of incredulity. How did it happen that these people who once denied the Lord are now called his sons and his daughters. And so Patrick, he begins his confession. This is how it begins. He says, I am Patrick, a sinner, most unlearned, the least of all the faithful, and utterly despised by many. And writing this confession at the end of his life, this is probably why Patrick was used so greatly. And so I simply want to say to us tonight, God grant each of us in our lives grace to be prayerful like Patrick, to pray through the sleet, to pray through the frost of indifference, to pray through the rain of I don't care,
to get up before the dawn and to seek God, to be passionately evangelistic like Patrick, to recognize that what life is about for each of us is that Jesus wants to make us fishers of men. That's the goal. And to distrust ourselves profoundly like Patrick. And so that all of us really truly say with sincerity of heart, I am a sinner, most unlearned, least of all the faithful, and utterly despised by many. And then we will be able to say with Patrick, as he says in his letter to Caroticus, I have not labored in vain in my going abroad to do the work for the Lord. It's not been in vain. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I should open it up in case anyone has any questions about Patrick that they'd like to pose. Are there any, any questions that came up? He's after. He's, he's significantly after. Athanasius is right at the heart of 325 during the Council of Nicaea. Do you think that there, I mean, his, his very the creed is amazing, isn't it? The, the faithfulness of the creed to the Athanasian statement and, and to the Apostle statement and to the Nicene statement, yeah. So it's not Oh yeah, it did. It made its way, and, and he trained in Gaul. He trained in France, and so when the Council of Nicaea was formed, it bishops from everywhere, mostly bishops from the east, but they bring in bishops from you know, like Toledo, and they're bringing them in from from that those areas, and so they they take it back um, to to the west um, in in this time. So the, the Nicene faith had gone there. Yeah, it's just you, you think of Patrick, either you think he's this kind of weird mystic or something, but he's a Nicene Orthodox preacher and uh, he's a man of faith. Yeah. His, yeah, very Pauline, yeah, least of all the faithful. Yeah. It's interesting, by the way, Paul Paul's confession the, from the beginning of his, uh, of his tenure as, a, as an apostle to the end of his life, Paul goes from the least of the apostles to the least of all the saints, to the chief of sinners, the end of his life. It's just progress. The, 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 the higher he gets in holiness, the lower Paul goes in the estimation of himself, the more sinful he appears. That's the great paradox of sanctification. We appear more sinful. There's more reasons to repent the holier we become. That's how it, that's how it happens. Yeah. And that's what we find in Patrick. It's what makes him so lovely. Yeah, That's a good question. Mm-hmm. I, the, does anybody uh, want Lloyd? You should you should kind of clue into this. If he's around the same time as as Augustine, and he's situated in Britain, what what might we expect to possibly rear its ugly head in Patrick's context in 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 fifth century Britain? Pelagius, right? The whole Pelagian controversy is is right here. Um, and um, I don't think we find the, the, those, this emphasis on sin in Patrick. It means that he steered, he steered clear somehow of that whole thing. Yeah, he wasn't infected by Pelagianism, I don't think.
Any other questions about about Patrick? Yeah. So um, this, they, uh, I think metaphorically, it it serves as a is a nice metaphor. He 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 drives out the um, Patrick had a horror of paganism. He had a horror of it. Like he 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 actively detested. At one point in the confessions, he says, "I refuse to suck the breasts of paganism." He said, um, and uh, which means he he. In fact, no. I refuse to suck the breasts of the pagans. That is, I'm Me not. Too. I'm not gonna. Yeah, good for you, Josh. Yeah. <laughs> he will not nurse himself on that stuff. He he will not nurse himself on 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 paganism. Um, but Patrick, the that he he drives out paganism in good measure from Ireland. It's interesting. There's a book by Thomas Cahill. Cahill, I believe, called "How How um, the Irish Saved the the, uh, the Western World or Civilization." Four seventy six, I believe, uh, Rome is sacked by Odoacer. Uh, Odoacer, if you're going to be a, a sacker of cities, call yourself Odoacer. It's a great name. Um, so Rome is pulling out of out of Ireland. But at the same time, uh, the Roman Empire is crumbling. It's falling to pieces. And as civilization crumbles in, uh, in Rome, civilization is being restored and it's being crystallized in Ireland. And in due measure, in good measure, it's due to Patrick by what he does. They begin to become a cultured people uh, under, under Patrick's influence and beyond. It's very, very important. And he drives out a lot of the darkness of paganism one of the, the lyrics that we didn't sing tonight in, um, in our uh, Lorica, whether Patrick wrote it or not, is a, a, a plea to be protected from the darkness of pagandom. And that's very fitting, because Patrick had a horror of it. And so this, this idea of driving snakes out, metaphorically, is a fitting picture. Driving out wickedness from, from Ireland. Um, but the snakes weren't there before before Patrick. There were no snakes before he came in Ireland. Yeah, the the th the the clover, not the clover. The um, the shamrock, as a metaphor for the Trinity. Patrick never taught that. The Lutheran satire, notwithstanding, Patrick never taught that the Trinity can be formed because the problem as as those Lutherans. You know, as they say, is right. It, it it's a form of modalism. We have this we have this one thing with little nubs: an expression of the Father, an expression of the Son, an expression of the Spirit. Um, and and that picture doesn't adequately represent who the Trinity is. And no pictures do. If you want to get a good um, schooling on how not to speak of the Trinity, read Gregory Nazianzen's orations where he says, we just can't depict these things. It's beyond our mind to create metaphors to depict them. We ought not do it, because every time we do, we're going to speak some truth, but we're going to speak more error. And some truth and some error is a, is a, is, becomes mostly just error. Yeah. Um, and so these pictures, whether it's... I had a... When I was at um, a recent gathering of a recent uh, denomination, Canada, um, I, I was I put forward a question just for the sake we're, we're in a children's gathering talking about catechizing children, 
And I just put forward a, a question for the sake of the whole group. What if a child asks about the Trinity, right? What, what if a child asks that question? And what's the best way to kind of, just to get people thinking? Um, well, this guy in the crowd puts his hand, oh, I know, I know what to say, he said. The Trinity is like water, he says. It's like water and steam and ice, right? Uh, and I just kind of am horrified and shaking my head because of the very thing we don't want to do. The Trinity is like an egg. The Father's the yolk. The Son is the white. And the Spirit is the shell or something to that effect, right? It's, it will always degrade. This is what Nazi Jensen says. It will always bring God down, these, these metaphors. We simply affirm the truth, as the Nicene faith tells us. One God, three persons. One substance, three persons. Yeah. Um, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, the Father is God, and yet none of their personalities or the persons are confounded or lost in each other. Um, anyways, Patrick never did that. He didn't do that. We have no record of that. That's just <coughs> someone else. Any other questions about Patrick? He has nothing to do with Lucky Charms cereal. Why do we drink on St. Patrick's Why not? <laughs> <laughs> there are some dumb questions. <laughs> yeah, we do it every day. We do it to honor him. We do it. To, we do. It, we do it feast because the Lord commands us to drink on feasts. Right? The Lord tells us to drink. Go buy strong drink, he says, and feast before the Lord. It's God's gifts. There's, there's, you know, there's, there's no better gift. Ecclesiastes say this is the gift of God to man, that you enjoy your work, that you eat, and that you drink before God. This is God's gift to man. Eat, drink, enjoy your labors. That's true. That's God's gift to us. Yeah, but we can't get drunk. That's forbidden. Drunkenness is forbidden. Any other any other thoughts about Patrick? Or questions? Mark seventeen, is that the day that he was born or the day that he died? Why why when we celebrate the calendar of the saints, by the way, Thomas Cranmer's um, Thomas Cranmer's uh, feast day was just several days ago, and I was looking through his um, his trial, um, one of his trials that he had with a guy by the name of Brooks, and Brooks was challenging him on papal supremacy. And Brooks said to him, he says, um, he says, um, when when Christ, who is the head of the church? She says, right. Cramer says, Christ. And then Broke says to him, but who did Christ put in his place as his vicar on earth? And Cramer looks at him and he says, nobody. It's great. <laughs> great. One word, just a drop. Take the mic, just <laughs> drops the mic. But why when we celebrate the saints in the church, and are they saints? Is there a problem with calling these people saints? No. Why is there not a problem? Because we're all saints. We're all saints, right? It's declared in the Bible to the saints. It's, it's there in the Bible. We're made holy in Christ. <clears throat> Why do we celebrate their death? The calendar of saints, we celebrate their deaths. Why do we celebrate their deaths rather than their births? 
Yeah, because their death is the true birth. The death is when they become most themselves. Yeah, that's their true birthday. Not, not their birth into this world, but their birth into the next. Yeah. So all of the feast days are the celebration of their, their, their death, whether they're approximated um, or, or not. No, but he, he got into a lot of trouble, probably. So there's a part of his confession where he talks about a trial. And the church put him on trial with respect to what he calls his laborious uh, Episcopal labors. And uh, probably it had to do this Caroticus guy. Caroticus was a warlord Christian, right, who had stolen a bunch of his baptismal... Yeah. Um, and... Uh, um, Patrick was very upset, and so what does Patrick do? He excommunicates him in this letter. That's what he does. He ex excommunicato. He excommunicates him. And uh, the church down here didn't like the fact that, that he had excommunicated a very important person. And that, that often happens in church, that when pastors go against important people, other people in the church get nervous because... You know, you gotta, you gotta take care. You gotta be, you gotta be careful around important people. But Patrick, Patrick didn't give a rip about Caroticus, and he excommunicated him. He, he called him a child of the devil. Yeah. Like Chrysostom. Uh, like Chrysostom and the and the the queen. Yeah. Exactly. That's a great. That's a great picture of Patrick. Very bold. But he was he was despised by his own people. It happens. It seems most of the greats in church history get despised by their own people. Um, like Patrick, like Luther, Calvin. Larry Who? Larry Norman? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, any other questions about, about Pat? Well, guys, enjoy, enjoy the nibbles here and uh, look forward to uh, Tim's preaching tomorrow on the, the triumphal entry of the Lord.